What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Book Talk Lounge, the place where you come to nurture your life and spirit through conversations about books and the experience of reading. Brought to you by the Reader Lounge. I am your host, Emiliano, and this is episode number seven of this new show, which I am excited to share with you. Today's episode brings to you a very valuable conversation that I had with Joel Primus, a Canadian entrepreneur, founder of the Naked Brand Group and the Co-San Travel Company. Joel is also the author of an astonishing business book titled Getting Naked, The Bare Necessities of Entrepreneurship and Startups. This episode with Joel was originally recorded back in the summer of 2021 for my current personal show, The Transformation Journey. Still, the stories, ideas, and lessons that I talk about with Joel in today's episode continue to be very valuable in the present, and that's why you are now finding this really memorable and spectacular conversation on the Book Talk Lounge. So now make sure that you get ready to listen and to enjoy this valuable and amazing conversation with Joel Primus. I loved reading your book, Getting Naked, and well, that will be the topic of today's conversation. Um, and so I want to start with an introduction. And people listening already know that I don't like usual introductions as to ask you, hey, could you introduce yourself? No, I want you to introduce yourself through a story. And this the story which I would like you to tell is about how you started your first business, how you started uh, Naked Brand Group. And through that story, tell us things about yourself. You mean the story in Peru? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically? Exactly that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm grateful to be here as well. And uh, thank you for taking the time to read my book and invite me onto your podcast. We did play some um, some telephone tag and some back and forth getting this one set up. Uh, yeah, so I am a believer in getting out and seeing the world and experiencing new things and trying to get off the track that you expect for your life. Mm -hmm. And I believe that if you can do that, the world will open itself up to you and all kinds of ideas and opportunities will land on you. Some you'll take, some you won't take. And it takes a certain measure of openness to be you know, able to go down that road. And so for me, I had, you know, I've been an elite runner and my running had come to an end. And so I was sort of lost and Something that lost people do is travel. You don't have to be lost <laughs> to travel. But it, the, the irony is that floating around the world is the, is the antidote to, uh, to feeling lost. And so my brother and I did this, but we, we had a little bit of a purpose. And that was we were going to try and make a film. And so we saved up and we bought this video camera. And we went all the way from Mexico to Santiago, Chile. We didn't finish the film it, as it was intended, but because uh, our... Well, we had a bit of a falling out at the end of the project and my, uh, our video camera fell off a cliff. But to, to wind the story back, we, um, we were in Lima, Peru, and we were at a nightclub. And this was like one of our first times ever at a nightclub. His for sure, because he was three years younger than me. Mine, maybe I did once before. Mm. And then uh, once or twice. And... And so we're at this nightclub and we realize that it's not really a nightclub. It's like part night, 
club part brothel. <laughs> and my brother is, is, you know, thinking he's just Casanova. And uh, we, we realize we got to get out of there before we get into some trouble. <laughs> so we get out of this, this club and we're walking the streets at, in, in this beautiful warm night in Lima, Peru, and we go to a, a night market. And there's all these booths. There's like chickens in some booths and appliances and other. And in one booth, there's underwear. And I needed underwear from, from like weeks back on this trip. Everything had like holes in it. And so I got this underwear and I'm, I'm like, oh my gosh, this feels incredible. And for those who don't know, Peruvian Pima cotton is like, is one of the gold standards in cotton. And it's way better than anything my mother ever bought me. <laughs> so I buy a few to wear on the rest of my travels, but just intuitively and instinctually, I put a few in my bag and I just, I'm like, I'm keeping those for later, like packaged and everything. Don't know why I'm doing it. And then we hike up Machu Picchu a couple of weeks later. And I, I'm not loving how the underwear is performing in this hot, humid environment. And so I start to think, well, all those fabrics I was used to as a runner they're more technical, but they're not this soft. And like, how can I put these two things together? And so as soon as our camera fell off a cliff and, <laughs> and I kind of unraveled, I got, I just, I got on a plane and went home and it couldn't have been more than, I don't know, a few months. And I was already like designing, trying to figure out how to design underwear. And, you know, it couldn't have been much more than six months after that, maybe eight, I'm on national TV on a, on a pitch competition called Dragon's Den, which is similar for your American listeners to Shark Tank. Mm. And I'm standing there in my underwear, um, pitching a business idea. I've, I, you know, I've never been a business person, never studied business, not a fashion designer. And I got absolutely torched. Uh, so to make that long story short, that's kind of how Naked got started. And it kind of sums me up in a nutshell where I, I just jump into things. You I, jump, I, yeah. them out as I go. I, I love that. And do you think, well, now recalling about th those experiences, do you feel like you uh, back then uh, felt a calling from, you know, this idea you had this vision you started developing? A calling to do underwear? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe more, maybe more to start a business, but, but yeah. yeah. Um, I think that, you know, I think you, you can be entrepreneurial in, in the sense that you're, you know, maybe you trade your own stocks on the market mm -hmm. as a retail trader, and maybe you're, you're quite ambitious inside a corporation. You're, you're looking to be innovative and entrepreneurial inside a corporation. And there's that type of entrepreneurship, which is absolutely entrepreneurship. You're trying to make a go of it on your own. And then there's the other type, which runs parallel to it, which is where, you, you can't work for somebody. <laughs> you mm -hmm. have to work for yourself for better or worse. You, you just aren't cut into that, into that, you know, that normal life, if you will. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I was that I got, I got, I was a runner. I was a long distance runner. <laughs> it's a solo sport, you know, in the sense that your, your success is based on how hard you're willing to push yourself in a race no one else is there to carry you across that finish line sometimes in other sports you know you can rely on your teammates and that's mm -hmm. an amazing thing but that's not not the same as in running and so it felt very similar to me 
or natural to me, I guess, to, to go into entrepreneurship. I dropped out of university. I got fired from my only real job <laughs> as a newspaper salesman um, because I kept trying to, well, one, run the newspaper, but two, uh, convince the people I was selling ads to to try and invest in my underwear company. <laughs> hey, if you have enough money to own a small business, maybe you can invest five or 10 grand in an underwear business. And so not specifically, I didn't grow up intuitively. Yes. And it made sense later on, but I didn't grow up in a household where um, we talked about business, where we mm -hmm. talked about money, where you were like, my mom ran her own business and my dad was a musician. So in a sense, maybe it was always there, but I didn't know until it hit me that that's what I was going to do. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, I do get what you mean because I think, well, since I was like around 10 years old, I have been, well, by then I was dreaming of being an entrepreneur and I think that sparked because of my dad, because he has been a businessman his whole life and maybe that was what started my, my vision. But then um, learning about people like Richard Branson and other great entrepreneurs who I admire uh, was also empowering to start things as my podcast, for example. Um, and yeah, I I used to tell my dad that I would never get a job, <laughs> that I w would be my own boss. And until now, I think I have had like maybe two jobs, uh, yeah, two informal jobs. And I, I don't think I am great for, for hiring. I think I prefer to be, to be an entrepreneur. I like that, that freedom and also that uncertainty. You like the uncertainty? You thrive on it? Yeah, most times. Most times <laughs> I do. <laughs> Other times it, it, it doesn't go well. Because, for example, two months ago, I thought I had planned uh, which podcasts I was going to record and post um, from May until July. But then I just recorded four and all the, the rest was a mess. And, uh, you know, I got a little worried with that uncertainty of not knowing what to do and what to post. Um, but I but I like that because now I know, like, that's part of, of the journey. Um, and well, I think uh, now it's great to bring your book uh, into into the conversation. So uh, I have prepared a couple of things. And the first one which I wanted to talk about is about the definition of entrepreneurship. So on page 222, in paragraph two of your book, you say, the work of an entrepreneur is not about being rich or even happy. No, an entrepreneur is about being whole, proud of what you do and how you do it. So here I have three main questions which are related. And because of that, I will ask them right away. So you can answer them however you want. And they are so first, what is your definition of entrepreneurship and of an entrepreneur? And then should everyone try to be an entrepreneur or should they just uh, stick to, to a path they, they have been put into? And finally, it is um, about the part of being proud. Doesn't that relate to feeling happy? Doesn't, if you feel proud, doesn't that also mean that you are or feel happy? Mm -hmm. I, uh, maybe we'll start with the last one. Yeah. And we'll see if I remember the other two. <laughs> all right, all right, yeah. <laughs> what I say when I when I mean when I say it's not about being happy, is it's not about the result. That's what I mean. So because it's not about the result and it's not about the destination. 
it's about the journey, right? Of course, you want to be happy and present <laughs> on that journey. But what I'm saying is that being an entrepreneur in itself isn't going to make you happy, right? Because nothing will. There's no thing that's going to make you happy. There's no material success. There's no relationship that's going to make you happy in and of itself. Your happiness comes from inside. It comes from being whole, which is the word mm -hmm. I use. Mm -hmm. Being whole, how I'm using that there is being yourself, is understanding yourself. And I believe, hence the title Getting Naked, it's about getting back to yourself in this, in this journey where there's a lot of stuff coming at you and people want you to be a certain way. And you look at people, you mentioned your idols. Of course, we all have idols and that's really good as a sort of as a guidepost. But if we, if we liken it to the, um, to the, I think it's a Buddhist saying might be um, Taoist, but um, like a finger pointing to the moon. Oh, Can't yeah. mistake the, you know, the finger for the moon itself, the finger being the idol being the things, you know, that we're doing to get to this destination. We're already there, right? And so uh, I view entrepreneurship as a way that we can learn about ourselves and that we can shed layers of anger and hate and jealousy and impatience and, um, and judgment for ourselves and for the people around us and for our circumstances how do we shed those layers because they show up in our life so often when we're in a business situation and we're really angry that something didn't go away or we're mad at someone because they did something the reasons that we're upset are inside of ourselves and if we can face those things and dissolve those things we become a better entrepreneur we become more whole and more true to who we are. So that's what I mean when I, I say, you know, the, the irony or the contradiction is that of course that will make you happier. Mm -hmm. but I'm trying to, again, separate destination from journey in that, in that statement. Um, and then I think you asked about a definition of entrepreneurship, but there might've been one sandwiched in the middle there. Yeah. The uh, should everyone be an entrepreneur? Oh, yeah. Or try to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. You know, we as humans, I think that one of the greatest gifts that we're given, I mean, one, the gift of being alive for all its hardship and for all its pain that we all have in, in, in so many ways is to experience life in, in this curious way in this curious way that always asks the question well what if i did this mm -hmm. <laughs> and instead it's i think this is okay but i think it's also false that many of us we get on this track where we think we're secure we think that we have if i get a government job government jobs in my country are very secure pretty much can't get fired. You get a union job. You pretty much can't get fired, right? You have your pension. You have all these different things, predictable time off. And so you have this sense of security. That sense of security may end up manifesting that way. It may just roll out the way that you've intended it to. And that's a great thing. 
But everything in my life and, and the people around me I've, I've seen is that that's a very false sense of security. And instead, the skill, the muscle that we need to exercise is adaptability, mm. is how we adapt and how we show up no matter the circumstance, no matter the unpredictability, just like you did when you talked about your podcasts, you know, all going astray. And so I think that in that sense alone, everyone needs to practice entrepreneurship in the, in the sense of being able to adapt and thrive in uncertainty is in part a, an entrepreneurial skill. doesn't mean you have to have your own business to exercise mm -hmm. that skill. But if we look at it more philosophically, I think it's absolutely uh, critical. No, not everyone has to run their own business, right? Mm -hmm. You know, because if we look at like in a society, in a business, in a corporation, there's a role for everyone, right? And there's a role for the entrepreneur and there's a role for the person who helps keep the entrepreneur grounded in his <laughs> or her desires to always be innovating and, and driving forward. Somebody needs to ground that into process, into, into being operationally minded, into being um, fiscally minded and stuff like that. And so you need that balance, right? Uh, and the last question, you know, my definition of entrepreneurship, I, I just think that, um, you know, I think artists of all ilks, you know, are entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. I think that obviously business owners, small business owners, big idea visioners, of course, they're, you know, they're entrepreneurs. Um, and so I think that more of us are entrepreneurs than, than not. I think it's about, I think it's just about when an idea comes to you, bringing that idea into the world, whether that's a project inside your corporation, that's your, that your, it's your idea and you're championing, whether that's a piece of, that's a, that's a painting, that's a song, that's a book, or that's a business. To me, an entrepreneurship is the person who takes that idea and is, is willing to do what it takes to birth that idea into the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, for example, in Google, uh, they tell the workers to the, the employees to uh, dedicate 20% of their time to create new things. And from for, from that time, things as email as Gmail uh, have come to life. And yeah, I, I do agree with that. It's more about bringing a vision into life. And then another thing you talk about in the book, actually, I think it's in the second chapter about taking the leap of faith. And this was a thing which I don't know why really, but it resonated a lot with me um, about taking the leap or just jumping with an idea and taking the risk. So I would like you just to get deeper in into this and, you know, uh, explain also how, when and why should someone take the leap with an idea? Um, instead of uh, either expecting it to happen or uh, reg regretting that it didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's always the point I find. I find it less now, but certainly when I was younger uh, and many of my friends and colleagues, um, they would, you know, they would have these great ideas and, and they would just not do anything with them. It just, you know, I need to finish school. I need to save money. I need to put it down. Mm -hmm. That was all very practical things. Um, and I've seen later on in their life, many of them actually start acting on 
on those some ideas that they have. So it was it's interesting for me to think about how the security gave them the confidence to to explore their ideas a little bit further than and maybe and maybe if I think about it, they just had more patience than me. <laughs> and they just had a better plan than me. But I you know, again, it's a muscle that we get to work, this idea of taking the leap. And it's not about just trusting ourselves that we can do it. It's about trusting that the universe will catch us. That more mm-hmm. <laughs> if it leads us down a bad path, there's an opportunity there or there's another door, right? We have to trust this greater thing. And that's faith, right? That's faith. We, we're, we're putting our belief in something that's not tangible necessarily. And it's a big part of of taking the leap it's saying i don't know exactly where i'm going to land but i know that where i land is going to be exactly the right place mm-hmm. and i liken this to like many people when they're dating <laughs> yeah right i mean when you approach a girl you like or a boy you like the first time and you, you ask them to like you back <laughs> potentially for them to love you. And that starts with just asking them out, of course, right? You're taking a leap, right? You're, yeah. And you get the butterflies <laughs> in your stomach that say, hey, you know, this is uncharted <laughs> territory. <laughs> and, you know, it might not be the first person that you ask that to, that the relationships works out, but you might learn something that, from that relationship that you take to a new one. And David Dyde always talks about this, you know, when there's this edge that if we live on this edge and that edge is like just this, this level of uncertainty that's exhilarating, that's empowering, that is filled with opportunity. We can create this, this amazing life that we want from living on this edge, from, from being that certain level of uncomfortable. But if we go too far past that ledge, we fall off the other side. So sort of an example of that is like me developing the pair of underwear. And then next thing you know, I'm on national TV. (laughs) This idea, not knowing anything about how to pitch uh, uh, um, the financial viability of my company, not knowing anything about how to pitch the... uh, a true valuation that that was aligned with where the business was today and where the business could go. And therefore I was called delusional on national TV and totally roasted. So there was an, there was an example of leaping just a bit too far, but then when the episode aired, other investors saw the episode, but Hey, that's not half bad. Maybe I'll give this kid a call. And all of a sudden I'm caught I'm caught by the universe right? Mm. I did leap too far. And so I really believe that when we live a life where we're not afraid to take leaps, whatever that is, taking that vacation you've always wanted to take, having a child, even if you don't feel like you're financially ready in your life to have a child, if, um, but, you know, but you know, you're called to it when you want to start a business it practicing the muscle of, of not being afraid to take a leap, but also exercising the muscle of what's a small enough leap that I don't leap too far, that I don't fall off the deep end. 
I didn't, you know, have an idea one night and then go remortgage my house to start the business the next day, you know, and then it fails and I lose my house. I still believe in that scenario. You're still on your right path. But the thing that we realize is if we take one small step at a time, one small leap at a time, next thing you know, we've gone farther than we ever thought we would. And um, I think that that kind of sums up what I, what I mean when I talk about that. Is there anything mm -hmm. more specific you wanted me to dive into there? No, well, maybe the idea of burning the boats, which you yes. talk about. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. about that one. <laughs> the um, the Cortez story. Yeah, exactly that one. Mm -hmm. You know, I was actually. Um, it's it's one of those stories where it's like you know, I think that this particular person committed unbelievable human rights atrocities <laughs> with his his um, his voyages, but at the same time, that you know the message of of this idea of burning the ships, I thought was was quite important to share um and despite the other stuff which made me almost not put it in the book to begin with i spent it was in and then it was out and then it was in and anyway the point is that um so this this spaniard who's voyaging into the new world he uh once his crew arrives at uh, at the shores they they burn the ships signaling that you know, there's, there's no going back. We only go forward. Right. And it's, it's a great metaphor to being all in because sometimes the safety nets hold us back. How many, how many stories are there of like musicians who I think Travis Baker just shared this on Joe Rogan's podcast not so long ago, you know, he's just went all in and, living on a couch in Santa Monica, trying to be a drummer, right? Not, there's no, there's no option. If I have an option, I'm going to fall back onto it. So therefore I cannot give myself an option driving out the metaphor, you know, sort of the, 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 the dreamy story of driving out to Hollywood, leaving it all behind, you know, leaving yourself no option, but success. And I think it's, it's very empowering for many to, to just know, right? I have to find a way. And sometimes that safety net, that thing, that crutch that's, that we have, it just continually lives in our mind as to say, no, you don't, you don't have to find a way. We got this, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And it, it sometimes, not all the time, it sometimes separates the ones who cross that chasm and become great and those who don't, because those, those were the ones who burned the ships and they said all or nothing. But that definition of burning the ships and that definition of taking the leap changes as your life goes on. Mm -hmm. it, as you're in different points of your life. For me now, I'm still an incredible risk taker in terms of, you know, business and whatnot. But, you know, when I think about, you know, all or nothing, well, that's my marriage that's my children. That's not my business. I burn the ships for them now. Right. Hopefully I can kind of do it all together. Mm -hmm. But before it was just me and nothing else mattered, not my relationship, even to the extent, you know, my, my wife now was my girlfriend then, but my business was much more important to me and, and our purpose, you know, should be very important, but 
so that's that's anyway that's <laughs> what I think about you know burning the ships and uh, mm-hmm. um, it's a fun it's a fun thing to do every now and again in your life <laughs> I must admit yeah I you know I have many many thoughts on this because. I, I will start by, by telling. So I have two friends who I usually do masterminds with, and they are interested just in, in investments. And so an analogy we usually take for, for the risks we take is about cryptocurrency. So someone our age uh, could take the risk of buying crypto, and if uh, he or she loses all the money, then nothing much happens because, uh, I mean, we... We don't depend on we don't depend on ourselves financially, but someone uh, older and an adult who has a family and all that might might not be able to to take that risk. And I do agree. But for example, then I think of Richard Branson, <laughs> who who just takes risk uh, risks and doesn't well seems not to care about the other stuff uh, except his family because I, I I have seen that he's like like very very close to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you, have you heard of, um, Tim Ferriss talks about fear setting? Have you ever heard yeah. of that? I mean, fear uh, setting is like a, is like a stoic version of what I believe it was Marcus Aurelius, but it might not have been who talks about understanding what's the worst that can happen oh, uh-huh. and getting okay with that up front. Right. So when I say that, you know, if, if you're situated to, to, to paint it really simply, If the worst thing that can happen is I go bankrupt, right? I just, I invested too much of my money into this relationship or sorry, into this business. Mm -hmm. And the worst thing that can happen because I guaranteed this loan and I put my house on the line that I go bankrupt. Can you get okay with that? And if you can get okay with that, great. And I think that a lot of people have so much faith in their, in their abilities and their skills Because this, it's not about how much money you have. It's about the ability you have to make money. It's the ability you have to build mm-hmm. businesses that matters, right? And so guys like Branson, you know, I don't know him personally, but he has faith in his ability to make money. So he's not afraid to lose money, right? Mm-hmm. You've got some uh, epic uh, band music going on. In the yeah, it's there. so outside here in the, in the street. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> It's all yeah. good. But I'll just, I'll just add one more thing to that. You know, but, you know, I had to ask myself the question at one point. You know, I didn't want to lose. I don't want to lose my relationship. The worst thing that can happen is I end up not seeing my children because of my choice. At this moment in time in my life, that's not okay. And at this moment in my life, you know, I put so much strain on my relationship. That's not okay. Now, obviously, my wife and our partners in our in, in life, so therefore, we're partners in business, and we see eye to eye, and we've worked a long way to get there. But the difference is that you know, I, I'm saying in a fear-setting scenario, losing my children is not a, a, an outcome I'm happy with. So I got to pull back and say, how do I adjust this so that that isn't the end result, right? As best as I can, I can't control that ultimately, but. Yeah, I think it's premeditato uh, malorum or something like that. The stoic mantra for for setting fears, right? Or or something like that. And you know, from from what you have just said, I also think about being resourceful versus having resources, uh, which I think is what 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 happens with with ransom. Yeah. 
and lots yeah. of lots of people. I mean, I think we're we're sort of facing the most resourceful generation ever. I think your generation um, is going to my generation is pretty darn resourceful. I think your generation is going to be even more resourceful. You know, the fact that nineteen and eighteen year olds are trading Bitcoin on yeah, you know, <laughs> and, and starting you know to have portfolios just shows you there's been a shift they see they're seeing the world differently what they're seeing is that i don't trust the man the man has not transferred the wealth to me like he should have therefore i have to take these measures into my own hands you know to the tune of like now there's a there's a whole new currency like you know or currencies in these cryptocurrencies that are you know the antithesis in some ways to the american dollar to the the old way right where where it all nets out i don't exactly know today you know maybe some people do smarter than me but what i'm seeing is a generation of very resourceful people mm -hmm. who know how to yeah. make money yeah we are having more more resources and more tools online to to create stuff even me with my podcast i mean if i didn't have internet i, I wouldn't be able to do what well maybe i wouldn't be able to do something like richard branson did back in his time where when he created a magazine and was talking with people because i mean in his case he had to to leave school in my case i i don't i am not planning to to leave school or anything for for my stuff i i try to sort of balance um both and I, I actually i wanted to ask you about balance which is something you also talk about in getting naked um and well you know i think i prefer the word harmony instead of balance uh because i was listening to an interview to jeff bezos in which he said that he doesn't like to well does doesn't seek to have Uh, life work balance he seeks to have a like a life work harmony in which both his work and his his uh, personal life empower him and energize him um so how do you perceive uh, what's the difference that you perceive between the life work balance or the life work harmony that you had back in the days of naked and in today in your in your life today where you have a family and also uh, a business about traveling mm -hmm. yeah i mean harmony is probably the better word um mm -hmm. than balance um i think i've heard that too i think i've, I've heard other entrepreneurs talk about work-life harmony this this comes down to you know there's there's a few things to unpack here you know working hard is normal Working hard is one thing that human beings are actually quite good at doing. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, we're built to do it. And I don't just mean in business. I mean, in go back to running, for example. You don't, you don't um, become a successful runner without working very, very hard at running. Basketball, hockey, doesn't matter. Soccer, football. So we have to work hard. And I don't define balance as like meaning that I get off work at five o'clock. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I don't define balances as, um, having a routine that I never, ever break. Right. Uh, def I define it in the ebbs and flows of life in general. So if I'm in a period of, of, um, just immense creativity, I'm not in balance per se with other aspects of my mm -hmm. life. If I'm in 
in the process of launching a business or launching a product in, inside a business. That takes a certain amount of work. Again, going back to the running example, if I'm preparing for a certain type of race, there's different periods of training. It's called periodization where intense blocks of training, lighter blocks of training, rest, intense blocks, competition. It's all periodized, right? It's not based in on what one day looks like or what one week looks like. It's a much bigger calendar. And so I see it the same way um, in business. Balance is, is knowing when it's time to rest, knowing when it's time to, to reflect, knowing when, um, yeah, when, and that's where a lot of us get stuck, myself included. We go back to the other days. There was never rest. There was never not something I was willing to take a step back from. And I fall into that trap again today, right? Doing that as a runner, the feedback is very instantaneous. Injury, always injury, right? In work, it's a little bit more hidden. In our relationships, the, the silent killer of that separation that happens between you and your partner doesn't happen in one big work cycle. From one year, it happens over a prolonged period of time, a continuum where all of a sudden we wake up one day and we realize the damage that we've done to that relationship because we weren't in balance, right? Um, so it's harder to see and it takes, a, it takes more self-awareness. And this comes to the sort of the final piece of that I wanted to unpack in this is that, you know, the, the balance and the harmony comes down to this inner, the inner work that we do in understanding why we're we are why we're not able to turn it off right like, turn off the work achieve harmony and the motivations that are driving an insane obsession with money or an insane obsession with success and notoriety without ever pause without ever reflection without ever um being able to be present with anything but our work that's not balanced to me and that's where you know, we have to look inside and understand what's informing that. Mm -hmm. So balance is instead of having things at the same level here, always it's more about like the movement there is and, and, and the cycles. Yeah, the cycles, okay. just like nature, mm -hmm. right? Just like nature, we have, we have the seasons and the seasons change and a hot season means something different than a cold season and more rain means something different. It all affects and but it all tries to find its, its balance. And, um, and it's not something like, I don't believe you're in balance. If you're trying to control your balance, you know, you, this, that just becomes rigid, rigid, rigidity, rigidity. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It becomes a rigid way of living. That's not balance, right? Just because you do something just because I exercise every day, and work, exercise, meditate, work, da, 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 does not mean I'm in balance. Mm -hmm. That just, that just, that's my structure. That's structure, right? It's how do I feel about the thing that I'm doing? Am I able to do it more when I need and less when I need? You know, it's, it's about flowing with your life mm -hmm. and trusting how your life is unfolding in front of you and reacting to that. I'm tired. I'm going to rest. I'm tired. I need to push through this. Then I'm going to rest. That's balance. It's, you know, it's not, it's not structure. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you know what just to happen to me. So uh, in the last three years, mainly or two two and a half years, um, each six months I have like big exams at school, and I through the years I have been developing my projects and all that, and after the 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 week when I had exams uh, ended, I got sick, and and that happened each six months. And even before the pandemic, I went on a camping trip. Then I had also exams and I was starting my page. I was starting the reader lounge and many more things that uh, my body, uh, I felt that my body uh, told me to stop or to pause to rest, but I didn't. And what happened was that I got sick and I, I couldn't do anything about it, about that. And in the last months, it has not happened in quarantine, I think just once. But, but I do get what you mean. It's more about knowing when to do certain stuff because we, we cannot like keep uh, a same level always and in, in everything of, of what we do. Um, and, and yeah, I like that. And actually, now we're talking about business and knowing when to stop. Uh, you talk about the founder's dilemma in your book. And I, I hadn't uh thought of this before i read it i hadn't thought about the the fact that most founders of of a company will have to leave it in a moment um and that moment might not be what uh the entrepreneur wants it to be so i would like you to talk a little bit about your experience with this and also about knowing like when specifically for entrepreneurs, when uh, should they uh, get away from the journey of the company? Yeah. Yeah. It's always, um, it's certainly a, 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 like a dose of cold water when you've <laughs> first founders dilemma. Um, I think that even like when I started writing this book it was a long time ago and I think things are shifting in certain ways. I think, You know, maybe in some respects, when found, founders leaving companies doesn't have to be, isn't exactly the same as when I first, you know, how I first thought about it. But I think the point still remains the same is like, um, the, the idea of the founder's dilemma is, in a nutshell, should I stay or should I go? Am I mm -hmm. still the right person for this, to run this company? Do I still have the same amount of passion? Am I still prepared to give it what it needs? But most importantly you know is there somebody out there more not more talented per se but more um their experience lends itself to the role today mm -hmm. and and they would do a better job steering the ship and how i was faced with that was that we had raised about seven and a half million dollars and i had I had in my mind, I'd be like, you know, I'm making a lot of mistakes and these mistakes are costly to my shareholders. You know, it's costly to their value. And although I'm a, I'm a huge believer that founders should stay and they should receive mentorship and, and from their, you know, from their boards of directors and outside mentors and coaches, et cetera, and guiding their businesses. And, and so that they keep the initial, the original spark and soul of the business this point. I decided in my mind that I was not the best person for the job. And we relocated the company and to New York. And I, I had invited this, this woman, I'd asked this woman named Carol Hoffman, who just was an industry legend to take the ship. 
And people were very excited about this, right? It was like, yeah, absolutely. From the shareholder perspective, right thing to do. <laughs> um, and, and, and of course, it was the right thing to do in many respects. We had a lot of money and we were trying to, to make this leap. But looking back on it, it was probably a bit too early because what, what hadn't happened, you know, we were still trying to make it. And so we were in this kind of murky place between an established entity that maybe needs a visionary, but, you know, a lot of operation and to this, this company that still needed, it was still a startup. It still needed that startup juice that uh, startup founders bring. And so I think we put ourselves in a situation where we put, you know, it wasn't just the CEO, it was the whole management team was used to running hundred million dollar organizations. And we weren't one, we were much smaller than that. <laughs> and so the, the expenses, the expense, the, the balance sheet, the financials, everything just bloated. And that nimbleness that's needed in startups it gets lost in this big, this bigger corporate mentality. And so I, um, I think I made the, I think I made a mistake with exactly maybe how not, not the people I brought in, they were all incredible at their jobs. It just, it, it, it seemed that way from, you know, where the company landed, but it, it but I had, you know, what, what we call imposter syndrome where I just felt like I was just living a lie in so many ways I either wasn't the right guy to run, you know, the company that was, that I had started and was running. And then when it got all these big wigs in and these really talented people, I felt like I wasn't good enough to be there at all, you know? And um, those are tough moments for entrepreneurs because there's so much emotion that objectivity can become challenging. And that's where, again, mentorship is critical, right? Mentorship from outside and inside faith from the shareholders to support an entrepreneur so that an entrepreneur can feel safe to execute the vision, right? Not worry, you know, am I going to get let go by the board directors and stuff like that? And, and so the, should I stay or should I go is, is the founder's dilemma. And I think usually the answer is stay more often than not. The answer is to stay, um, not to go. The flip side of that is, you know, if you got a beautiful exit, waiting for you. <laughs> Maybe the answer is to go, <laughs> you know, as long as your shareholders are looked after, you know, as the company continues on, then yeah, you know, take that, take that money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I knew about this story of people and how they, well, the founders got out of people by reading Elon Musk's book. And it's, it's like very interesting to see, for example, with guys as Elon or as Richard Branson, how they have the entrepreneurial spark, the entrepreneurial energy, and they are not like business owners. They are the starters of the business. And uh, I don't know, I, 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 I'm still, I, I am still young, obviously, and don't know much about how my journey will be. But I think I identify myself more with the people who start the business as Richard Branson again, than the people who are now running the business are as uh, Tim Cook, I think it's his name, the CEO of, no. of Apple. Yeah. Uh -huh. 
Yeah, um, and one thing I loved from the book was the third chapter, which is about the basic principles. It's really pretty logical and I think um, pretty powerful to to ha have a structure to, to take decisions and to take the leap and, and, and many more things. And you talk about uh, establishing the why, the values, the principles, the goals of the company, and the essentials and the actions. So could you get a little deeper into this and then how to establish them? But what I am most like curious about is about the values. How are the values of a company like set? Should they be set from your personal values and can they change over time? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that every, the, the the illusion in anything, I think we talked about this at the very beginning, is that it, we're secure. We always have to adapt and change and grow. Think about what just happened during um, the Black Lives Matter, uh, um, when all this sort of began to really move itself to the, to the forefront, say last year, last summer was about yeah, uh, really came into everybody's view. And no matter how good your values were in your company, you probably were not hiring black employees. You were probably not hiring LGBTQ employees. Um, companies were white. <laughs> they were white. And, and so sure, you can have the value of like, you know, take ownership in your work, which I have that value, but <laughs> it wasn't even coming close to addressing these things. And so people didn't shift and make important changes with new information. You know, it's like when you know better, you have to do better. And that's what happens mm -hmm. as we, we go through our lives. We are always learning and learning to do better than we did before, which is part of the reason I struggle so much with woke and cancel culture because, you know, it's one thing to the gift that we're bringing these things to attention is a beautiful thing that we're calling things out and saying, Hey, maybe we need to look at how we did that. That's a great thing. But to say that, well, we never should have made the mistake in the first place is is a very challenging thing because we all make mistakes. Mm -hmm. We all make a lot of mistakes. We're not born woke. Well, maybe you could argue that we're born woke and then we become unwoke as we go through our adolescence <laughs> and into our teenage years. But the point being is obviously that we need to have sort of compassion and understanding for the mistakes that we've made and accept that for some of them, obviously not all of them, you know, we can adjust and you saw that happen with the black lives matter movement where companies did make changes good changes right and we're seeing that happen with the lgbtq communities where people like lebron james and shaquille o'neal are like mm -hmm. start marketing agencies entirely bipoc lgbtq like this is great stuff it's not caught in the past it's saying, how do we move forward from here? How do we do better always? And so I love that. And I want, you know, for all of us to say, you know, it's not what you did. Again, for the most part, some stuff, 
certainly, <laughs> certainly. Mm-hmm. But it's how do you do better? And how do you actually, don't just say it, but actually do better, actually take action on hiring or changing your, your marketing and, and the, the way that you present your company in today's day and age. So, um, so that's great to see. And we kind of dive back to the values specifically. Um, and this idea of guiding principles is, you know, there's one simple, like if we just boil it down to its simplest essence, if you hire one asshole in your company, <laughs> a person who is an asshole, a genuine dick, like um, who talks behind people's back, who is insidious to your, your culture and you know, takes no responsibility, points fingers, makes people feel bad about their mistakes, an asshole. Before you know it, you have a culture of assholes. It's not the good person that infects and is contagious. It's the bad mm-hmm. person, right? We sink, we sink down because in some respects, it's like our survival to sink down to this, like the, the level of the, this is, this is where this person is in the tribe and we sink together. And so in terms of establishing really clear values, really clear principles inside your business, this is how we do business. This is how we treat people. You know, this is, it starts with the hiring and it starts when you hire people who understand and are aligned with the values and principles of your company. Uh, you know, Howard Schultz said it simply when he said, you know, why, why do you have smiling people? Because I hire people who smile. I don't train them to smile, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. And it's really hard to do that because, it, because it, um, the hiring process is quite short. Anyone can put on a face, you know, the references can be maybe friendlier than, mm-hmm. you know, and, or somebody doesn't really care. And so they're just whatever. Yeah, it was fine type thing, right? Nobody, nobody, I think people have a hard time, many people being honest about, um, you know, whether somebody was, was a good person to work with or they focus on, yeah, they did their job well, their job well. Does that mean they were a good person to work with? (laughs) No, not necessarily. It doesn't. Right. And so that's where the hiring process can be so hard. And so it's not about the hiring process as much, although that's, that's critical, but um, it's what you do next. If that person that you just hired is not a culture fit in your company, is not aligned with the values of your company, you have to do one of two things very quickly. You either have to eject them off the bus very quickly, or you have to coach them. And you, you have to give them an opportunity to say, hey, have I failed you, right? Did I fail you in putting you in the wrong position? Did I fail you in creating an environment where, yeah, I wrote the the values on paper, but we don't actually live them. Mm -hmm. And therefore you felt like you didn't have to, right? So you got to check yourself and you got to do right by that person by saying, did, you know, did I fail you? And if, you know, again, if that, if that quickly comes to, no, you didn't, they're just an asshole, get them off the bus, right? (laughs) As quickly as you can, which sucks, especially in a startup, because well, a it always sucks to fire people; it's just painful. And b, um, 
you're always scrambling. It's like, now I got to go find somebody else. I got to go through this process again. My business needs this. And so it's a very tough part of being an entrepreneur is, is that getting the team chemistry, right? But when you do, it's like a, it's like an orchestra playing well together, right? Everyone knows what everyone's going to do and they trust, they have that taking the leap. They're willing to take the leap here because they trust that their, you know, the, their person is going to take the leap there. The person who designs the product, the marketer, tr- the person who's running social media trusts that when that product ships, it's going to be good, right? The person who's making the product trusts the marketing person is going to take beautiful pictures and represent mm-hmm. that product beautifully. And it becomes this, this incredible this symphony working together. And I've experienced that in in my life and not consistently, but periods of time when there was just this group of people and it can make the smallest organization feel like the most powerful, you know, um, I did Diamandis talks about that. Peter Diamandis talks about how like, you know, a small group of capable, whatever committed people can do things that, you know, big corporations can do. And it's totally true when you get into that flow together. So that's why I'm really, you know, quite strict on, on having those values, but also being open that they can change. People can say, Hey, this should be a value or we should tweak this value. And I'm like, let's sure. Like, let's mm-hmm. talk about what, what that looks like. Yeah. Adapting. Hey, this is Emmy again with the quick reminder that by the end of this episode, I will be sharing with you my golden nuggets from this conversation. I hope you are enjoying and receiving value until now, and please, if you think this has been worth your time, share this episode on your Instagram story and tag me as the.transformation.journey so I can repost for you. Let's now get back into this episode. I have a few things which I want to mention about culture and all about this, but uh, before that, I like the story in the book uh, where you were uh, talking with your friend Cam about the culture in Naked and how you told him uh, about um, yeah uh, how the people in Naked were through the story uh, through a story you had in Thailand. Could you tell that story? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it's funny you bring up Cam. Um, I, I've been working on a film, the same film that I was working on mm-hmm. when I started Naked. I finally finished it. It's a bit different now. Oh, uh-huh. but it's dedicated to Cam, and we're showing it tomorrow at a at a a, a global travel conference. And so it, I've been seeing a lot of Cam. Um, so it's just he's been on my mind a lot. Uh, <laughs> so Cam and I were in Thailand, um, and Cam. For, you, for those of you who haven't read the book, which is probably most of you, uh-huh. <laughs> Cam was a, a friend um, and he was an investor in Coast, uh, in Naked, sorry. And, um, and he was somebody I traveled with as a young man and he passed away. And he, his, his passing was one of the turning points of, of my life for the better. Um, losing him was, and is incredibly hard, but it showed me, it, it realigned me to, harmony <laughs> not balance mm, uh, <laughs> so we're in thailand and we're at the full moon party 
and the full moon party is, is a monthly party on the island of Copenhagen where I, I mean, I don't know the exact number, but it seems like thousands of thousands of thousands of travelers come and there's this stretch of beach. And then there's like all along the beach, there's bars and then there's just the beach and all the bars of patios and this and that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the boats are just coming in and all young people like yourself who are tasting <laughs> the first bits of freedom unleash <laughs> full moon party. And I was one of them uh, way back when. And so I was, I was drunk um, and we were all <laughs> partying together and, and I, um, I had, I got so drunk that I was like, Oh, crap, I need to go home. Like, this is not going to happen. And I think at one point I thought maybe I would be going home with this girl, but then she realized I was too drunk and, you know, and it was uh, not going to happen. So I ended up just kind of finding, stumbling my way back to my hostel, which is kind of like a, like, a, it's not like in a building hotel. It's, it's on another beach somewhere and it's kind of open. And, um, and so I just, I don't even make it into my bed. I pass out in the door, <laughs> in the doorway. Right? Um, I think my, like my bug nets ripped down. Like I'm just, you know, just beyond. Um, and then all my friends who, you know, are a little bit older than me, Cam was three years older than me and they've lived a little bit more. They can handle mm -hmm. their, handle their liquor a little bit better and also know the, the code the conduct of, you know, parting with your buddies. And one of the rules was like, you know, especially in a country like, you know, Thailand, um, not to say it's a bad country, but you're just in another country mm -hmm. period uh, to let them know what the heck you're doing. Right? <laughs> you know, I'm going back, I'm doing this, you know, not that we needed to hold each other's hands, but just kind of you know, respect and decency. Yeah. Mm -hmm. your buddy disappears. Not cool. So I disappeared on them. <laughs> And they, you know, they're just like, they didn't, re didn't realize it at first and they kind of did. And then, uh, and then they kind of freaked out. And, and so come morning, come 6am, there's a lot of passed out people on the beach. <laughs> people who like me, just like, I'm not, yeah. I almost made it to my bed. They didn't even make it past the beach. And so at first light, Cam is rolling over bodies that he thinks are mine to see if they're me to see if I've like died on this beach or passed out on the beach. And obviously I'm not there. And he comes back to the hotel and he's just like, just livid with me, swearing at me. Like I wasted all this time over bodies and what the heck and this and that. And so when I described in my book, what naked's team was like, I said, naked's team were the type of people who would have, uh, roll over bodies at the beach. And the reason I say that is because there was three other guys in that crew. Cam was, Cam was the only one, I think maybe one of their friend helped for a bit, but stuck around and did that. Right. Mm -hmm. He soldiered on for his people, like his, his person here. And that to me was the type of people we had people who, again, you can trust to have your back and not be competitive and, and, and not, you know, worry about whether or not they're going to be there for you. And so that's how I used to describe our, our culture at Naked for this, this wonderful moment in time in which we had that culture.
Yeah, I I really love the many stories you tell in the book. And well, some of the things which I wanted to mention were well, first, so I think the closest experience I have had to hiring and firing somebody was in October of last year of 2020. And I invited a friend of mine to to join the reader lounge to help me edit some stuff, some videos. And we were working for for a month. And by the time I was also starting properly with my podcast. Um, but uh, work the working relationship didn't work as as I thought it would. Um, and we had more problems than we usually have as friends. Um, and uh, um, by the time it was, what sorry, were the, what were the problems you guys had? Uh, well, for example, if, if, you, <laughs> if you like, if you look at my interviews right now, for example, the one with Don Miguel Ruiz Jr., uh, the, the video, uh, doesn't have like the black margins up and down. It's just like me and Don Miguel. Um, and he, I knew he maybe did know how to do that, but, uh, I kept telling him to edit the video. So it looked like that, but he told me that he couldn't do that and problems like that when technical problems. And also in our meetings, uh, he was just, you know, uh, talking about other stuff and we didn't make much progress. And th those were like the, the issues we had. And so then it came a time by which I thought like I I should tell him to well I should fire him, um, which didn't feel uh, great at the time. I was really sort of worried about that, but now looking back, I can see that first of all it was like the right thing to do, and it wasn't as as uh, a big problem as I thought it was. Now uh, we, we are still friends as we were back then and there everything's fine so uh, um yeah that that's about hiring and i think it was not much the issues were not much about like the the work and the work and what we produce it was more about how we um connected and the conversations we had and mostly culture um and he was the only one in the team with me <laughs> so i i it didn't feel good <laughs> um and yeah, so that's about like hiring and firing. And the second thing which I wanted to, well, actually read is a quote uh, in, in Getting Naked, which says, uh, people, not products, are your most valuable asset. And I I basically agree with that. People make up the company. And as, as you say, a small group of people can create as uh, great things as a big organization could do. Um, and well, is there anything you would like to add uh, to, to, to that? It's a, it's a really good point that you bring up. Um, because it, like, let's say, you know, let's separate in, uh, like an employee or a team member from a business partner for a second here. And let's pretend your, your buddy was your business partner. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have many friends. I've only successfully been business partners with one. Mm -hmm. um, they're all still friends, but the, it is a very interesting thing. And this person may be the most unlikely business partner for me 
Um, it's Alex, obviously, mm -hmm, Alex is, is, is mentioned in the book. Um, and that didn't mean that, you know, we didn't have moments where we weren't business partners um, in the life cycle of, you know, multiple companies, but it's, it's not, it's not as predictable as hiring. It's not like hiring. You're not a business partner does need to fit into the, into the realm of, of the company and where they fit in for, with their strengths versus your strengths versus the team. But you're talking more about a marriage than you are about an employee, right? You don't fire a business partner in the same way that has massive implications potentially in terms of the ownership of the company, in terms of, you know, paying somebody out these very big ramifications depending on size of the company. And so you have to be able to operate with this person on a, on a, this radically transparent level as you should with your, with your team, but with your business partner, it almost needs to be implied. Like, you know, you're on the same wavelength and there's always this initial excitement with businesses. It's so wonderful. The, the, the feeling of those first few months of a new business. And I've asked, I found it just kind of liken it to the honeymoon when that period's over is only when you understand whether or not that person is going to be, you know, your business partner for you, because they're the one you're relying on. And when the rest of life comes crashing in, your life, their life, marriages, kids, goals, dreams. And all of a sudden this initial idea that was, that takes so, so much, is like raising a kid. It takes all of two people to raise a kid or obviously for single parents, a really incredible single parent. Right. But it's the same thing um, with a business. It takes that level when we're talking about building big businesses here. Right. And so I always say, you know, you have to choose that business partner so carefully. It's not, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you, you go, you, you, you go to a club and you see a pretty, pretty girl or boy and you want to go home with them. That's one thing, but marrying them is a different thing. And it's the same with business. It's an atrocious analogy, but I think it's not actually far off. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I get what you mean, especially because I lately, there are many things which I have been learning to try to improve my entrepreneurial stuff, but it feels kind of weird not to have anyone to share that journey with. And, and sometimes say, I, I think like, all right, I should, I should find someone who maybe could join either the reader lounge or the podcast or, or, or whatever, but it's, it's more difficult than, than what it seems to find like the right person who aligns with the values and all that. And, you know, there are companies uh, which are started by two people or maybe more. Um, but then if you start a company uh, alone, that's when you should uh, take care of who, who you join with. Right. And because in the other uh, in the other scenario, you have already started with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's um, it is. And I've also met many entrepreneurs who are just far better solo solopreneurs and they are you know business partners or you know where you find as you you know as you go through your career as an entrepreneur you you end up in, in lots of different businesses 
usually, even if, you know, people only know you for one, mm -hmm. you might have your hands in plenty of pots. And so sometimes after you've been through one with somebody, you find that like, maybe you're going to go this alone, but there's, a, there's an arm of it you share. And it creates these interesting opportunities where, you know, with this person, you're not fully business partners, but you're more than just maybe shareholders or um, in another entity and your talents can be split off into that. And so I've, I've started to notice that where it's not about just fully, this is, we're in this all the way together. It's, it's more kind of an interesting uh, map of like, well, I'm good at this. Well, I'll help you and I'll invest, but it's your thing. It's not my mm -hmm. thing. We're not partners. We're in the sense that, you know, we're, to the bitter end you're you're responsible for its success but i'm here to help mm -hmm. and i found those to be quite quite nice mm -hmm. as well how how does that work with with a mentor that that relationship where he or she helps you but it's he is not like necessarily uh responsible for for the the success of the company mm -hmm. yeah it, it's like like a marriage counselor or a counselor you know they're just there to help I, i i always find that mentors you know sometimes offer great business advice but they know any smart mentor knows that when the stakes are you know the stakes are there it's it's there's another factor that's driving your decision making and so mm -hmm. they're just there to try and be a mirror um where they reflect back to you And what you're saying, what you're thinking and help you kind of sift through the emotionality of it, sift through how myopic you might be, um, how in the weeds you might be with your business and help you kind of pull out of that. And sometimes, sure, mentors like actually like, no, don't do that deal. <laughs> I've seen that deal before. <laughs> But that mentor knows that you're going to do whatever the hell you want to do. Mm. Right. They've just said it and you needed them to say it. You needed to hear it, but you're still going to do whatever the hell you want to do. And I think the most successful people are the ones who do listen, you know, or at least, you know, they go back, frick, man, like if I think back to so many things that mentors told me that I didn't listen to, if I'd listened to it, would have been way better. Would I have learned the lesson from the mentorship experience in and of itself? Probably but there's a chance I had to go through it myself to mm -hmm. actually learn the lesson. But as you get older, again, that's where you do take that advice. I think in the beginning, it's kind of okay. Fall mm -hmm. on your sword a bunch of times and, you know, it, it creates the character that you need, but you know, <laughs> maybe mm -hmm. I'm wrong. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think of it, for example, with, with my parents or me and my parents or my sister and my parents, when they told us not when they tell us not to do something or, or whatever, and we go to it anyways. Um, I mean, they they maybe gave the, the advice or whatever, but still we we learned from 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 our mistake, and especially at my age and at my sister's age, where we are already kind of having some freedom. So it's it's mostly on us like how we how we act and how we, yeah. we we go through life because we are not like just 
junk kits anymore. And something I wanted to ask you is how in your journey as an entrepreneur, have you uh, connected with, with mentors? Because for example, with the woman who uh, was the CEO of Naked, I, I do get the point that she would become the CEO and that was sort of a mentorship relationship. But with other people, how, how do you connect for them to be your uh, business mentors? Mm -hmm. I will, I'll just rename or uh, digress back a little bit. Yeah. You know, in our psychology, it's like we learn from mistakes. So, you know, the obvious example is, you know, I touch a stove, I burn myself. I know not to touch a stove. If I, <laughs> somebody else touches a stove and burns themselves, do I learn not to touch that stove? Probably you should, right? Can we learn from others? We read these books. Can we learn from others' mistakes? And there's just this, this part of us that's in our <laughs> own biology that's like, no, I still want to learn the mistake for myself. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, mentorship is, is, again, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's one of those things that, that is in many respects changing. Different mentors come into your life for different moments of, mm -hmm. of your, your professional career and your personal, your personal life. And so uh, I've never been, I have friends who have sought out mentors, you know, whether they're, they're finding them on LinkedIn mm -hmm. and they're, or they've heard of somebody and they make a point to get their email address, to cold call them, to reach out and say, Hey, you know, I want you to be my mentor. That's never been me. Um, I was more, and those people, by the way, generally speaking, have been incredibly successful. So it's probably <laughs> right back. <laughs> but for me, I um, I just always was more let it come when it when it feels right, it's there. And you know, an example of that was I was I was down in Miami on a business trip, and um, we were doing a photo shoot for for Dwayne Wade's uh, the basketball player his his collection naked underwear and. You know, that was the focus of my trip. And the morning we were, we were leaving, I think we were leaving around noon and we were having breakfast at the hotel. And one of my business associates was having a catch up breakfast with his friend who did happen to be a naked shareholder. I didn't know it though at the time. And I joined and I was like, this individual is incredible. I, and he's now one of my dear friends. He is, a, he's a fantastic author. He's a healer. He's a businessman, but I didn't know any of that then. I just mm -hmm. had this connection with this, this human. I was like, this person can guide me. Um, and he became a mentor. And so that's how I've in my life is I just try and I feel it. And if I feel it, I will, I will then be deliberate about trying to make that happen. You know, I, cultivated that relationship with him from that point onward i made a point to see him every time i went down to miami it went from casual drinks to this is a friend this is a mentor etc right or this is a mentor this is a friend probably and so that took effort over a period of time um and he's and he's a great mentor and friend today and that's happened a handful of times in my life you know is it is it enough i don't know you know, I probably should have more mentors or mm -hmm. you know, more consistent ones, but I've just kind of just more let it happen. 
as as it happens and and then pounce on the opportunity when i see it and i feel it in my heart yeah so you trust your gut and follow through when when you feel like that yeah i love that and you know going back to the beginning of the podcast we were talking about uh sort of the journey of the entrepreneur but mostly about uh what it is to be an entrepreneur and an analogy you give in the book which i would like you to talk about is the the journey of water going from the top of the mountains into into the ocean i really loved that because you also say that it, that's not just the journey of the entrepreneur that's the that's life that's that, that's the, the process we we all have and so could you talk about that you did your homework <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah there is this story that i heard that story many many years ago and it talks about how water always for one this is sort of an aside water is is gentle but yet it is powerful. So to kind of liken that to the, the mentorship thing, right? You know, I'm not necessarily seeking one. If one comes into my life, then, you know, maybe I'll, I'll try and make it happen. But, but water being gentle in its, in its um, nature, it's soft, it's malleable. It can power through rocks, right? It's a, so it, it's just this incredible thing when you think about not forcing things in your life being like water, being adaptable like water. Mm -hmm. And so as water makes its journey from the top of the mountain in many cases, and it, and it sort of comes up from the ground. I've actually seen this happen when I was, when I do my high mountain travels in the summer in the north of British Columbia, where you literally just sometimes see it rise out of the ground, just rise out of the ground. <laughs> And then it just looks like a wet kind of rocky out, grassy field in the Alpines. And then it, you know, it finds its way into a crevice and it starts making its way down the mountain and maybe it disappears again to pop out somewhere else. But then at the base, you see this river. And so this water's journey goes from the top of the mountain and it, and it works its way down. Sometimes it's raging. Sometimes it's still always flowing, but, but appears still. Sometimes it hits blockages and it has to go around one way or go under or go around another way or it rises and then it comes over. Mm -hmm. And eventually it makes its way to the ocean. The ocean is the water's ultimate goal, but it doesn't stop at the ocean. It appears that that's its ultimate goal but then it evaporates into the sky and is once again rained back down onto the top of mountains and into the earth. And it begins its journey all over again to the ocean. The obstacles that it must go through, the, how it must be adaptable um, and how it's always moving forward. And so I liken that to a journey's entrepreneurs. And kind of coming back to this idea of, you know, happiness isn't the goal. The ocean isn't the goal. The mm -hmm. goal is the journey. And, and no matter what, when we get there, we're going to repeat it again and again, so long as we're on this earth. Um, 
And it's, there's this Indian proverb that says, you know, behind mountains, there's more mountains. Um, and I want entrepreneurs to think about it that way. I want entrepreneurs to, to be present in their journeys and know that there's many because that first idea or that main idea that you're pursuing can feel so consuming. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing. It's becoming your purpose. But at the same time, it's not your only thing. Just like, you know, just like the water, it has to adapt. It has to move around. It has to do these different things to get there. And so we need to have that openness and that fluidity and that adaptability. I, I just really love that analogy for in general and especially because it includes nature and lately I've been embracing nature more or, you know, uh, just going to the forest or, or whatever. Um, and you know, something I always ask in these interviews because my podcast is called the transformation journey is what's your definition and how do you approach transformation? And I want I want to ask you that because I think it's, uh, sort of related to the journey of the water. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, if we talk about, if we talk about it in that sense, you know, transformation is the water is always the water. If we want to get like really into the metaphor here, the water is not transforming. Mm -hmm. It's not transforming into the ocean and transforming into the rain. Ultimately it is just the water, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, and that's the way that I think I'm learning about transformation in life Um, in my own life, I should say, is that I'm not transforming into something different. I'm, I am, it is already me. I am it. I am all that I need to be. I am whole, but I have to, if we, you know, if we, if we talk about using, if using that word transformation, it's a process of elimination. It's a process of removal back to who we are. We aren't, adding our way with all the skills that we know and learn, right? We're, we're, we're distilling down to our essence. Um, and that, that might not be you know, how people think about it. that's, I'm not talking about transforming as a businessman, as a businessman mm. or woman. Yes. You have to learn skills. You have to add so that you're, you're better at that thing. If you're a basketball player, you have to learn, you have to transform into a better basketball player, but as a human being, I think it's the reverse, right? I think it's, it's actually getting back to an acceptance and love um, for ourselves. It's a letting go of our, our, our traumas, the things that hurt us in our life, the things that made us sad, the things that made us angry that we held onto. The things that we read and learn are all about how to not hold on to those things mm -hmm. and how to come back to hear, which is the idea of the book, getting naked is getting back to this thing. And so, um, so in, in fact, in many ways, I'm trying less hard to transform than I used to try, right? I'm trying to be less rigid. I'm trying to be less structured. I don't have to meditate for a certain period of time every day in order to transform. 
I'm trying to be like, when I can, like the water, adaptable. Today I didn't meditate. That's okay. I'm adapting to the flow of this day, right? And that's because the because at the end of the day, we can just like dedicate ourselves to transformation and that's great. But if that transformation takes us out of the present moment, we've missed the point because we don't have future self. I don't have future Joel and I don't have past Joel. I only have this moment. And sometimes the transformation can be like, well, if I do this, I'm going to be better then. And that's true. In, if we're talking about skills and, mm-hmm. you know, if I keep practicing piano, I'm going to get better then. But I don't have them again. I don't have it. It does not exist. This is what ha- I have. And so if we get present in this moment in our journey, in our life, this idea that I need to transform dissolves because then we look around and we, we see beautiful faces of our friends and our family and we, we feel the wind on our skin and we smell maybe the, the air is you know, floral or it's fresh. And we, we, we don't have the need to change any of it, right? Um, and to me, that's, that's the most rich we could ever be is if we, if we look around in this moment and, and enjoy it for all that it is. Um, even if that's just five minutes and then, you know, we go back to being focused on mm-hmm. future tasks and yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> and I'm not suggesting not to do that. We're humans. And we're, we're driven by our purpose. But if we're only driven by our purpose, we miss the point, which, you know, in the book, you, I'm sure you remember when we talk about the false idea of legacy projects, the false idea of mm-hmm. we can d- you know, deny our own death, uh, these immortality projects, um, and we're, we're striving towards this end that we don't have, right? This, and, and so that could change. That's just where I'm at right now. <laughs> Damn. Um, <laughs> have you read anything by Eckhart Tolle? I've read um, Stillness Speaks and A New Earth and Power oh, of Now. Uh, yeah, A New Earth is great. Yeah. A New well, Earth is great. Yeah. I, I read that on that trip, that trip um, when I was to, in Peru. Oh, no yeah i i do love that book and you know i have been able to relate much of what i learned uh for example what you just said to that book more well not most of the things but many of the things of well what you talked about i didn't really get them right now because i I mean, my brain is trying to to comprehend many things, um, and so, anyways, after afterwards, I re-listen to my interviews, and I hope I get it then. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I think I do get your point, which is mostly about you are just water, uh, you, you just are and uh, adapt to life in in the moment, as when water has to go through waterfalls will fall or through rocks or around okay i i like that and now that we're talking about this these topics in your website you have a namaste symbol uh why is that that <laughs> yeah that one that one uh-huh. <laughs> 
because uh, it's a cool tattoo, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> isn't that why I have it? I mean, it's probably on the on the uh, maybe in some respects on the cornier side of things I have, but uh, I just you know I always understood it um, as the God in me creates the God in you. Um, I think that there's sort of a bigger cosmic meaning to the to the Om, the Namaste. Um, this, the, the, um, the realities that we, we live in, but for me, it just is always boiled back to that. Um, the God in me greets the God in you. So doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter what you did. Um, and I see, right. I see, I see your pain and my pain. I see your love and my love. I see your fear and my fear. And, uh, and so I've just, as a, someone who's been transformed by travel and just the goodness of people around the world, I've just, that's one way that I try and hold on to that as a sort of remember to always hold on to that when I'm feeling judgment or, mm -hmm. or um, yeah, judgment or envy or whatever, you know, I just try and see somebody at exactly, you know, the oneness of our human uh, our oneness and our humanness together so that mm -hmm. that's what it's there for the website i guess that's sort of my greeting if you will yeah i i really like this and when so so you told me that you were at the new earth when you were in peru so by that time did you start learning about all these things does these spiritual things or or when was it not far before that uh but that you know there i always fondly recall just like when you're starting a business when you're getting into this to spirituality or you're getting into anything and there's this freshness of and this excitement and this zest for the light like wow it is awesome to be a human being on planet earth and to, to experience these things and you kind of feel this like i'm the i'm discovering things for the first time yet those things have been like ancient traditions for 5,000, <laughs> years, um, at least practiced, you know, maybe eternity, probably eternity, absolutely eternity. And so I, I had come out of running, um, with an injury that it, it forced me to, to look at my life. And I ended up reading just, just so many books, but the first book I ever read about, I would say energy and spirituality was actually um, the Celestine prophecy, which is a fictional story about uh, essentially seeing energy and our, our connected energy. And they're down in the Amazon somewhere and they're trying to save mm. these, these ancient traditions that are in these, these monasteries. And it's a great, it's a great book. Um, and so that kind of opened my eyes to, seeing energy in a different way. I meditated and I was very into uh, visualization as a runner, but it wasn't spiritual. Mm. It wasn't spiritual at all. Um, and then it just became, I just became voracious, you know, a new earth, four agreements, the monk who sold his Ferrari, um, the artist's way, Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. Like I, there was just so many of these books and, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And that was just like early days, like early twenties. Um, 
and like I said, then you get to a point where it's like, you know, that's good. These books are beautiful teachers, beautiful reminders. But if mm -hmm. I'm so obsessed with reading this book that I'm no longer present in my life, I'm missing the point of the book. And so that's where I'm sort of coming to in these days is a lot less, lot less self-help some, but a lot less, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah. One thing I don't love from the Instagram community of books is that many accounts, I, I will even consider mine sometimes make it seem that we are reading all day long and we, we finish a book a day and stuff but i mean that's not really it i have uh last month i barely well I, I was reading your book and another two books but i didn't make much progress with them um but yeah i look i do like that to consider this stuff reminders and not necessarily like the truth or something you you gotta live by and if you don't live by that you do not have value and you're not worthy of love and 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 all that and um you know we have almost talked for two hours so i want to start asking some final questions but but i still i i really love these interviews and especially talking about business and spirituality and this this has been great but what i want to ask you is so in a part of your book you talk about clients and treating them great because they're human beings as, as us and yeah they they have they want to thrive and have desires and all that and something that came into my mind when i was reading that was uh online entrepreneurs or people who sell courses and trainings and webinars and all that so i i think i can perceive that many of them like focus only on how much they sell and not necessarily on acknowledging that they are contacting and impacting real people, even if it's online. So how can we avoid us? Well, I sort of consider myself as an online entrepreneur. So how can we avoid falling into this trap of just selling and not looking into the real impact and connection we are generating with, with the clients and with other people? Mm, good, good question. Sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I don't consider myself an online entrepreneur. I, the, I wasn't born in the internet. The internet didn't breed me, right? Mm -hmm. Like it does so many people today. Um, so I don't understand it in the same way that you might. Mm -hmm. uh, I understand it as a, as a vehicle, um, as a practical vehicle for my products. Um, it, even if myself is one of those products, but I don't think I understand it. It's nuanced the same way you might or somebody else might, right? And so I, um, I have many friends who have courses and they're quite successful with them. And from anything I've ever seen from them, they, they do have a great deal of care, uh, especially early on when they're able to. And then as the thing you know, gain so much momentum, it becomes very, very hard to, uh, to have the same level of care for, you know, mm -hmm, everyone, mm -hmm. because you're just one person and there's so many hours in the day. And so I've yeah. seen kind of go through those, those struggles. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, 
I think it just, I think it just comes down to, if you, you know, think about the four agreements and one of the agreements, just being always do your best, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you have the value that you care about your customers and you always do your best to show up for them, um, you know, with, with customer service, with the value of your product, et cetera, then that's the best you can do, but you should, you, you know, you should absolutely think about it. I, I think that, yeah, I mean, I'm not, as I said in the book, you know, the customers are your oxygen, your oxygen mm-hmm. to them and, and their oxygen to you. It's, it's a connected relationship. And, uh, and, and so you have to honor that. You have to honor that you can put food on your table or live of your, you know, your private jet dream life, which is, <laughs> seems pretty awesome. I've never done it, but, uh, well, I, I shouldn't say I've never done it, but I haven't done it like those they weren't my jets. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I didn't pay the rental fee. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think, I think, yeah, you just got to care and you just got to do the best you can at caring. And you have to understand that it's not possible to, hmm. to necessarily, you know, otherwise you're not going to have any time for, you know, for anything else. Hmm. I think that's a pretty terrible answer to your question. Um, no, it, it it wasn't. I, I I do do like what you what you say, especially about caring. That that's that's basically. It. For example, I mean, I think of Amazon of big of big companies as Amazon, which might focus a lot on profit, but at least they have like a good customer service and they focus on on how they treat their clients or Disney or or big companies as those. Yeah, I mean it's a good point if you compare Facebook to Amazon. Yeah, for sure. Amazon, oh, but there's not even a comparison in terms of the customer service. Not even a comparison. Facebook is atrocious. <laughs> they should they should be ashamed of their customer service. Mm. The, the amount of issues that myself and and friends have had getting just not getting resolution in a timely matter, in a friendly matter, in a, it's, it's beyond me considering how much money they have. <laughs> There's no mm-hmm. excuse it's inexcusable yeah. to not be as good as Amazon at it, you know, or even Starbucks. Have you read the book Onward by Howard Schultz? Yeah. I mean that it's, I really enjoyed that book, especially because I, I like the the story of Howard of how Starbucks was uh, not taking care of customer service and the experience, which was the main point. But then they paused, and right now, at least here, if you go to to Starbucks, the the experience is still good. Um, just just to just to riff off that for half a second because it is a good point, and you kind of brought it up earlier. Even if it's about profit. It's still, what I mean by that is even if you do, um, you have customer service excellence because it, it adds to your bottom line. Even if that is the driver, it's still better to do it that way from a human standpoint to treat humans like humans who have bought mm-hmm. your product and it is to you know treat them as just a number on a spreadsheet. Yeah, and I mean, we can think of many companies who... Well, which don't care about their their customers or just focus on selling. And after they sell, they don't help you with the product or with the promised value. And well, the other thing which I wanted to ask you to talk about, just to let us know how things are going and how it started, is about your new business, Co- Cosen Travel. So 
how did that came into life? Uh, the Kosan Travel Company, uh, or just Kosan, we named it after Kosan Road in Bangkok, Thailand, which is a famous traveler street. And after Naked and after kind of doing the Wall Street thing and doing the the Madison Avenue thing, and it, we just, we, we knew we loved travel. We wanted to get back to it. Um, and we wanted to create a company that helped us live that lifestyle, right? Live the traveler lifestyle and something we wanted to do for 40, 50 years, not, buy, not build it to sell it. If that happens, sure. But that wasn't the intention. Build a business that I truly want to mm-hmm. take into my old age. <laughs> so uh, that's why we started it from a personal standpoint, from a, from a product market fit standpoint, um, from a market standpoint, we just looked at the market and said, there's no travel clothing companies for millennials um, who are avid, voracious travelers. So there's a, there's a, a space in the market to, to become a challenger brand in, right? I mean, everything kind of existed in athleisure, in outdoor. Um, and the market is that, you know, the consumer is that nuance these days, that niche, right? Like I'll buy my, my hiking clothes. Those, those ain't my traveling clothes. Trust me. My yoga clothes ain't my traveling clothes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we get specific and there was nothing for that, spe- that level of specificity. So we did it. We did a million dollar Kickstarter. It suggested that there was product market fit, at least in, you know, in the category of travel dresses that we were, that we had, mm. that was our beachhead into the space. And so, um, you know, we had a really good start. Uh, COVID was very, very challenging for us. Um, we are still, mm-hmm. we are still climbing our way out of, or back to normal normalcy, I will say, um, you know, there's a lot of, I think a lot of online businesses did pretty good, you know, travel clothing was not great. And I don't yeah. think we made all the right decisions. I think we made good, we made decisions for the right reasons, but I don't think we made the right decisions in how we pivoted and adjusted like for instance we just paused the business for like eight months at one point we invested time and money in ppe not a bad decision from you know from a from a logical standpoint the world needed ppe we had access but i i think if i look back on it now we probably would have fared better or at least the same if we just stayed with trying to sell travel apparel and not even really pivoting our messaging too much. So, you know, you live and you learn. We're, we're almost through the worst of the pain. <laughs> and back yeah, well, that, that's great. And where do you see Kosan going in, in future years? What I would love, what my dream is for this company is that we are a one-stop shop for everything you need for travel, but it is like just sustainable, high-end, ethically sourced, incredibly functional product where no matter where you're going in the world, let's say you're going to South Africa, let's say you're going to Thailand, we can actually create specific packing lists for where you're going and what you're doing in that country. It is that, um, is that level of detail. So you can buy everything you need for a trip, for a trip in one click. And you know, that we at Kosan just travel all over the world with our customers. Mm-hmm. That's our sort of our functional goal of 
our mission as a, as a company, um, delivering, uh, you know, on, on a promise to our consumers. But, but beyond that, we believe that travel makes the world a better place. You know, we believe that the more people who travel, the better off the world will be. And therefore we want to do everything we can to support travel and human rights causes so that we just become more and more one as a, as a world, mm-hmm. not, not more divided against ourselves and in each other. I really like that. And, you know, I right now, my only two entrepreneurial projects are the podcast and the reader lounge. But in the future, I would like to have a, a company or something around traveling or also around um, energy, around sustainable energy. And I, I sort of have many ideas, which I hope like uh, develop in, in the future years. And well, Joel, is there anything else you would like to to add in, in general before wrapping up? No, man, it's been great. It's been great really chatting. Been. Um, you're, you're cool. You're a cool entrepreneur and you're going to make it. I know it while well, you're making it. Hello again. This is your host Emiliano coming to wrap up the episode. I hope that today's conversation was enjoyable and valuable to you. If it was, please consider sharing it to a friend and subscribing to the show. Remember that you can keep receiving value from the reader lounge by following on Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. You can find the links to those platforms in the description of the episode. That has been it for today. I wish you a happy and prosperous day ahead or a fulfilling and peaceful afternoon. My name is Emiliano. This was the Book Talk Lounge brought to you by the Reader Lounge. I'll speak to you in the next episode. Peace.